to be reading from Philippians this morning. We'll be reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. And before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come right into your holy presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. And um, we're thankful, God, as we turn our attention to the, to the preaching of your word, we ask that you would fill Pastor Adam with your Holy Spirit and help him to preach your word in spirit and in truth. Open our ears as well. Open our hearts. Soften our hearts. Um, teach us, God. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Uh, convict us where we need conviction. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians 2, 1 through 18. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking a form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, also... Should be likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What a huge blessing it is to have the scriptures in our language and to be able to spend some time here this morning just exploring a couple of these famous verses in the Bible. What a huge, awesome thing this is. We're looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. I might go a little further than that, but probably not. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. This contains uh, a famous and confusing sentence in the Bible. So let me read this to you. Therefore, my dear friends... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, and here it is, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Well, let's look at this 
um, and begin just kind of with dictionary definitions. I'm going to start with work out your salvation. And we're just going to make sure that we understand every single word there. This is one of those times when we need to crack out the dictionary and make sure we understand the grammar of it so that we hear what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. And then we'll tie it to what comes before and after in order to see how to apply it to our lives. He says, work out your own salvation. Let's look at that, uh, that word own or maybe your own Work out your own salvation. If you remember, Paul was in jail. So he's basically saying, look, I am not there anymore to lead, to preach, to push you, to pull you. I'm not there. So keep pursuing God. You're going to have to do this on your own. Keep doing this because I'm not there. Work out your own salvation. Earlier in verse 12, he's giving them instructions and he says, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. So this is weighing on him. He's saying, I'm not there. I'm not there and I want to see you continue to do uh, what I was doing for you, pushing you and pulling you and saying, let's worship, let's evangelize, let's disciple, let's have intimate fellowship, uh, let's take care of people who need taken care of. So he's not there anymore to do that. And so he's saying, you're going to have to do this. Leaders are very important in our spiritual lives. God created us to live inside hierarchies. But as we mature, as we grow in our faith, we start pursuing God on our own. We figure out uh, how to worship him, how to hear from him in the Bible. We don't leave the church. We don't leave the hierarchies. We're still dependent on each other's spiritual gifts. But we begin to learn how to self-feed. And self-feeding and private worship is very important in terms of a mark of spiritual maturity. Toddlers can't feed themselves or if they do feed themselves then they feed themselves uh, the wrong things but as they get older they begin to learn how to make certain selections and feed themselves and the same is true spiritually and so what paul is doing here is he's saying work this out for yourself now i am not there to preach and to push and to organize you've got to do this work out your own salvation this is on you now because i'm not there i'm in jail and i'm not there so work out your own salvation Now, let's look at another word here. He says, work out your salvation. And what does that mean? This is the crucial word here and very important for us to understand. Um, What does it mean to work out salvation? If we remove that, uh, your own. So it just says, work out salvation. What does that mean to work out salvation? We got to do this for ourselves. Okay, but what does that mean to do that? What are we supposed to work out? How, what, in what kind of sense are we working That work out is a translation of a word that means to produce or to create, which is interesting, has to do with action. This isn't about theory. This isn't uh, think through the implications of this. This is no do. Paul uses the same word in Romans five, verse three, when he says suffering produces endurance that produces is that same word in Greek. Uh, Something produces something else. Uh, endurance is something that comes from suffering a result of suffering is endurance and so this word has to do with something that is produced as a result now salvation has results also paul is telling them to do stuff that comes as a result of salvation this work is a result of being saved the verse does not say work for your own salvation that would invalidate about two-thirds of what Paul says in his other epistles. 
work for your own salvation. That would put the work before the salvation, right? Work for salvation so that the result of the work is the salvation. But it's the other way here. It's work out what comes from salvation here. Let's say I were to tell you, work for me and I'll give you 10 bucks. In that case, the work comes before the 10 bucks. But that's not how the grammar is working in this particular sentence. This has to do with working out the results of salvation. Produce something that comes as a result of salvation. In other words, since you have been saved, do stuff. All kinds of different ways to say this in paraphrase. And he says here to work out your own salvation. Let's look at this word salvation. Salvation is something that God does. Justification is part of salvation. There's nothing we can do to add to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves elect or to get ourselves adopted into God's family. These are things that God does by himself. But after we've been converted to Christianity and been regenerated or born again, then we do have very important work to do, and we call it sanctification or perseverance. Those are two very important parts of salvation that we participate in, sanctification and perseverance. A lot of energy goes into sanctification and, and, and perseverance. Sanctification is a lifelong, increasing work of God in our lives to make us more like Jesus Christ. It's loving God more, loving other people more. It's worship, it's discipleship, it's missions. All that stuff should be increasing as a part of the sanctification that goes on in our lives. Also, perseverance. Perseverance is remaining a God lover all the way through life, knowing that life is going to include a lot of difficult things. Perseverance is facing those difficult things and saying, I'm sticking with God. I do not know what he's doing. I do not understand how he's doing. I cannot philosophically explain this situation, but I am sticking with God through this. That's perseverance. J.I. Packer defines perseverance as persistence, under discouragement and contrary pressure. Sanctification and perseverance happen by God's power inside us, which is what Paul says in the very next phrase, for it is God who works in you. So these are expressions of faith, but it is still work. And it requires a lot of energy and it requires a lot of concentration in order to become sanctified, in order to continue with God. We are not robots that have been programmed by God to obey him and to worship him. We are involved in loving him. We are involved in missions. God involves us in this relationship and it requires work. It requires concentration. Sanctification and perseverance come from God saving us. It is a result of salvation. Paul is telling the Philippians, keep growing in your faith. Keep growing in your love for God and in your love for other people. Keep believing and increasing in your belief because this is what happens when someone has been saved. You've been saved. So work out the implications of this and do the implications of this. And he's saying, even though I'm not there, you've got to do this for yourself, you have got to let the spirit of God make you more and more like Jesus so that you continue with Jesus until you die or he comes back and think hard about this. Work hard at this. And he tells them, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let's look at that phrase there with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this is important. 
it's not okay to just say the sinner's prayer when we're four years old and then go on living however we want. That's not what salvation looks like. It is theoretically possible for someone to be saved like that. But if that person comes and wants assurance of their salvation, it's very difficult for us to give any assurance. It is theoretically possible that that person is saved without any fruit from that person's conversion, without any results of salvation being displayed. It's theoretically possible, of course. And yet that's not normal. That is not what salvation normally looks like, which is why the fear of God is so important. Paul tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God is worthy of fear. Revelation 15, 4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou alone art holy. See, God's holiness makes him worthy of fear. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, do you not know? And we're talking to a church here, Paul Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And it's important for us to know this. You don't just say the sinner's prayer and then go on living however you want. But salvation creates change and transformation in a person's life. And if that transformation does not occur, then we ought to be worried about our spiritual condition. Spurgeon describes the path to conversion in this way. I'm going to read you about a paragraph of Spurgeon here. He says, by nature, the sinner does not dread the wrath of God. He thinks sin a little thing. He looks upon its pleasures and forgets its penalty. He dares the Almighty to the war and lifts his puny arm against the eternal. No sooner, however, is he awakened by God's spirit than fear takes possession of his heart. The arrows of the Almighty drink up his spirit. The thunders of the law roll in his ears. He feels his life to be uncertain and his body frail. He dreads death because he knows that death would be to him the prelude of destruction. He dreads life for life itself is intolerable when the wrath of God is poured out into his soul. Many of you who are now before me have passed through that dreadful ordeal of suffering under a sense of the wrath of God. We, my brethren, shall never forget to our dying day that hour of desperate grief when first we discovered our lost estate. By the preaching of the word, by the reading of the scriptures, by prayer or by some providence, we were led to look within. We discovered the evil of our hearts and we heard how terribly God would punish the transgressor. Do you not remember how we started from our beds in the morning, having slept uneasily and bowed our knees in prayer and prayed until the hot sweat ran down our brow, but rose without a hope that we had been heard. This is a common experience for believers who have had some insight, some self-awareness into his or her own heart, and also some revelation of God in his holiness. And those two things don't go together very well, and it causes a disturbance or a, dis, uh, a fear, a fear that comes from comparing his holiness to our sinfulness. We face the reality of hell and God's wrath in such a way that is disturbing. That leads us to the cross. That leads us to an awareness of what Jesus Christ really did, that his substitutionary death paid all of that penalty so that God loves us 
and we are reconciled to him and our sins are totally cleaned. And so the next step after that terrifying experience of what if I die, what's going to happen to me when I die because I see this holy God and I see my own sin. Now we begin to understand how the gospel works. And so whenever that flash of fear occurs throughout the Christian life then immediately leads us to the cross where we simply need to confess our sins, put our trust in Jesus Christ, and we are back Uh, back on good terms with the Lord. Spurgeon is describing an important part of spirituality, a fear that comes from comparing holiness to sinfulness. And there are flashes of that same disturbance that continue all through the Christian life. And the more that we understand what God is like, the more we experience this sublime concern when we are in God's presence, like looking into a deep black ocean when we're a little too far from the shore or like standing too close to the edge of a mountain cliff, or like a crack of thunder that happens a little too close to us. God uses nature in order to remind us of his own power and glory. And we're meant to have that same experience from time to time when we reflect on what the Bible says, when we put together the pieces of theology and we begin to see that God is holy and God is great and God is glorious. Hebrews chapter 12, this is New Testament. The writer says, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. C.S. Lewis probably said it best in his Narnia books when Lucy was talking to Mr. Beaver and Mr. Beaver said, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than me or else just silly. And Lucy said, then isn't he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. So the Christian knows himself. And the Christian knows his God. That that God is deeply glorious, holy, powerful, sovereign. And to be in his presence is this strange combination of the greatest pleasure and also fear. And a relationship is not, a relationship with God is not like a Costco membership where I'm in, even if I don't use the card, even if I don't like the place, I'm a member or something like that. I actually like shopping at Costco, but, le- but it's not required to be a member of Costco. I could, I could pay for a Costco membership and never go, never have any relationship with Costco, but that is not how salvation works. It is not just sign on the dotted line at the beginning of some service or something that I sign, I'm a Christian, and then I go on whether I like it or engage with it. No, Christians, because the Holy Spirit is active in us and because we fear a holy God, we are involved in sanctification and perseverance. We are actively, intentionally pursuing God and pursuing spiritual growth. We are actively, intentionally facing down all kinds of trouble and all kinds of questions, and we are sticking with God no matter what. Now, before you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, hopefully I don't have a heart attack at this point and leave it here because that would be a disturbing sermon because the rest of this paragraph, he hasn't even put a period there yet. He continues in verse 13 and he says, for it is God who works in you. You see, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are regenerated. That's what Jesus meant in John chapter three, three, (laughs) John chapter three. When he said that we <laughs> when he said that we need to be born again, regeneration is the same thing as being born again. And born again is one of those old phrases that Christians use and may remind you of Jimmy Carter. 
but it's an important thing that Jesus says needs to happen. We need to be regenerated. We need to be born again. Regeneration is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes into a believer's life right after conversion. It's a major transformation of mind and will that happens because all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is inside us. In fact, the statement of faith of our denomination says he, the Holy Spirit, indwells, illuminates, guides, equips, and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. That's what the Holy Spirit does. This is tricky, isn't it? Because on one hand, we're told, work this out. You've been saved, so what should the results of that be? Think hard about it and do that stuff. So we're told we got to work this out, really actively live the Christian life. But then we're also told that it's actually God working inside us. And Paul says something similar in Colossians chapter one. So this isn't a mistake of Paul. It's not like he was writing, got mid-sentence, went and had lunch and then came back and said something that didn't totally fit with what he said before. He says the same kind of thing fairly frequently in Colossians. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's a cool verse, by the way, because it's got three different parts to it. It's got mission and purpose in it. Him we proclaim, teaching. Our whole goal is to make people mature in Jesus Christ. But then he says, I'm toiling at this. That's not just work. That's, that's toil. That's sweaty, sometimes bloody, sometimes kind of a bruised type of, I'm working really hard at this. I'm struggling. I'm toiling. That's the Christian life. Ministry is very hard work. Just living the Christian life, just being a godly Christ-like person in your home or at your place of work is hard work. And yet that third piece is so important. And he says, with all his energy, I'm struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul often talks about how hard he's working for the church, and yet he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. That's a cool way to word it. So he's working hard. He gets up in the morning, probably gets up earlier. He's working hard. Christian life is not a passive experience for Paul. All of his bones and muscles and soul and thoughts and psychology, it's all thrown together into this toil that is aimed at building up the church and helping people to grow in their faith and so on. And yet he says, not that I know what I'm doing here because it's God's power working within me and he's giving me all the ability that I have. If anything good happens, it comes from him. At the end of our service uh, here at Cornerstone, I usually end with uh, this awesome paragraph from hebrews chapter 13 where this writer of hebrews says the same basic thing now may the god of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen So what the writer is saying there is, look, I want you to live the Christian life, live it fully, live it deeply, like run and thrive as a Christian. And I'm praying that God will equip you and give you the power that you need in order to do that, especially in those times when you feel like I'm out of gas here. No, you've got an infinite God in there. 
So what does this look like in real life? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. These are difficult and complex truths to hold in our hearts, to hold in our minds. And we see, I think, two common extremes in American evangelicalism, and one of those extremes is passivity. Uh, This is the person who says, well, you know, I I prayed the sinner's prayer before and I believe the Bible. And even though I may feel embarrassed and convicted from time to time, I basically believe that my faith is good enough. So, you know, I'm not going to win this marathon, but I'm going to cross the finish line at some point. And so that's good enough. And other people lean toward legalism. Legalism. This is the person who says, I feel shame when I'm not exhausted. Uh, I live a disciplined life so that God will approve of me and so that others will approve of me. And I agree technically with the doctrines of grace, but my security comes from doing stuff that make me feel good about myself. And both of those extremes fail to understand this passage. Let me give you an example of active faith so that we can avoid passivity and legalism. And I'm completely stealing this from martin lloyd jones so just so that just so that uh, due reference is made to martin lloyd jones in his book spiritual depression chapter 10 <laughs> i would I, sometimes i read martin lloyd jones and i'm like why am i writing my own sermon here why don't i, <laughs> why don't I just get up and read that one so i'm going to do my best to summarize what uh what martin said there uh He's quoting Luke chapter 8, uh, the, the story of Jesus getting into the boat with his disciples and a storm comes. You know this story. Let me read it to you. It's about four or five verses out of Luke 8. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, this is important what he says, let us go across to the other side of the lake. In other words, it is Jesus' idea that they get into a boat and he's the eternal son of God. He knows there's going to be a storm. So he says, let's get into a boat and go to the other side, knowing that there's going to be a storm. So that's the setup for the story. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. So we have the humanity and divinity of Christ that are uh, on display here. You have him in his divine nature, knowing all things future and past and in supreme control over all creation and everything that happens and yet in his humanity he was pooped he'd had a long day so he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger so it's not like these guys were just all a bunch of you know scaredy cats or something that that couldn't handle a couple of waves like they were in danger so they're in probably one of the scariest situations of their lives and they think they're going to die and it's not because they're all a bunch of just little inexperienced people that don't have any idea what's going on these are men who live on the lake many of them are fishermen and they think they're going to die so this is they were in danger and it continues and they went and woke him saying master master we are perishing And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raving waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Man, wouldn't you love to see something like that happen? (laughs) And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. That's because it's just Luke chapter 8. There's a lot of chapters coming. 
They were afraid. What do you think they were afraid of? Because the wind and the waves are gone. They're afraid of that dude in the boat that just told the wind and the waves to calm down. And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who is, who is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Okay, so Jesus rebukes them. He says, where is your faith? It's the only thing that he says. And it'd be interesting just to listen to a bunch of preachers read that line because you can read it in a bunch of different ways, right? Where's your faith? Come on. How long have we? We've been together for seven chapters. (laughs) All right. Anyway. The dudes in the boat needed to act differently because Jesus was in the boat. That's the simple lesson of this story. They needed to act different because Jesus was in the boat and because it was Jesus' idea to get into the boat. So you have his word and his presence both active there. He said, we're going to go to the other side. So you've got the word of Christ involved there. And you have the presence of Christ involved there. And some of you may think, oh, it would be so much easier to live my life if Jesus was actually visibly next to me. Except, you know, we actually have an advantage because Jesus is in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And these disciples didn't have that yet. Pentecost hadn't happened yet. So you have presence and word of Christ that are involved there, which makes the freak out totally inappropriate. They were in danger, no doubt. They were in danger, and they thought they were going to die. They did. It was the scariest experience of their lives. And yet he says, where is your faith? He knew they had faith, most of them. But where is it? Where's your faith? I do not see your faith here. Your actions, your facial experience, the words that just came out of your mouth, master, master, we're perishing. That doesn't match faith. Their problem was that they panicked. Jesus had said, we're going to the other side of the lake. Now, it was going to be a rough ride. They were going to get wet. And they were going to be disturbed. But they did not need to panic because of God's word. He said, let's go. And because of God's presence, he was right there. Martin Lloyd-Jones said at the conclusion of this paragraph, he said, it seems obvious as we look at it objectively in the case of these disciples, but when you and I are agitated or disturbed and do not know what to do and are giving the impression of great nervous tension and anybody looking at us is entitled to say, that person has not much faith in his or her Lord. There does not seem to be much point in being a Christian after all. There is no, not much value in Christianity as I see it in that person. We must never allow ourselves to be agitated and disturbed, whatever the circumstances, because to do so implies a lack of faith, a lack of trust, a lack of confidence in our blessed Lord and God. Now, that does not mean that we go through through life with the exact same facial expression on every single day, all day long. There are scary things that happen. There are disturbing things that happen. And this doesn't say that you should never be scared or disturbed or cry or anything like that. Uh, uh, There is a wide range of emotion involved uh, in, uh, in life. But after that initial near heart attack that we have and in regard to interpersonal situations or bad news we just got on the 
phone or whatever, you know, something that just came in the mail, whatever it may be. That what, it, life all of a sudden faces us with a thing here that we're like, oh. And after that initial freak out, which will hopefully be relatively brief, we, we think hard. What would it have looked like for these disciples? What would have faith looked like in that boat? Think hard about truth. Jesus said we're going to go to the other side. And Jesus is the Lord of all creation. So think hard about theology. Also, there needed to be an exercise of self-control and courage in light of the fact that God had said certain things and God is a certain way. So you're going to get wet and you're going to get nervous. And this is going to be a challenge to faith. You're going to wonder, how is it possible that Jesus, Lord of all creation, is sleeping and we're about to drown And he's mad at us for being scared. I mean, there's all kinds of questions that come here. And many of you have faced those kinds of questions. How is it that God is active in this situation in my life? How is it possible that this could have happened? He's supposedly sovereign and good. How does that match what just happened to me or what happened to me 20 years ago or what have you? So we face these difficulties. And so, yes, there's questions here. But then we think about the theology that we do know. There's a lot that we don't. But we think hard about the theology we know and we use self-control and courage. We're going to get wet. We're going to get nervous. This is a challenge to faith. But you restrain yourself from panic and despair. You hang on to God. You face the terror or the tragedy with Christ in you. And then you do faith-filled things. So I'm suggesting three things that should have happened in the boat there. Think hard about truth. Exercise self-control and courage. And then third, do faith-filled things. So if you're in that boat and you go through a, whoa, that was a big wave and waves crashing over you and you're wet and you're afraid you might fall out and you're trying to get water out. And so you go through this momentary like freak out, but then you think. And as a result of thinking, you use self-control. And then this weird thing, courage, pops up. You're standing next to somebody who's also freaking out. You grab their arm and you say, dude, we're going to get through this. Remember what Jesus said. He's right there. We're going to get through. Grab the oar. We're going to be all right. So you start doing faith-filled things. Working out salvation in that boat is about thinking clearly, controlling yourself from a faithless freak out, courageously facing the scariest situation of your life and doing faith-filled things. That's what needed to happen in the boat. And that's what needs to happen when we face difficulties. I'm not defining workout to your salvation with fear and trembling as making a list of spiritual disciplines or prescribing a certain lifestyle that fits neatly into the silly subculture of American evangelicalism. Things approved by church people. That's not what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Julia Child said, everything in moderation including moderation. And I agree, if anything, I think our souls would be healthier with a little more rest and relaxation and laughing and drinking and playing. Work out your salvation is not a heavy load. You remember what Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is about bringing kindness actively to hurting people it's about contentment in really frustrating situations it's about thinking hard and arresting our hearts when we're spiraling into despair or anger or whatever it may be this is about confidence that god knows what he's doing this is about faith in action in real life so let's say maybe you're standing 
with some of your friends at school standing in the hall and one friend, the most popular one, wants to throw a big party but doesn't want to invite that person over there because she isn't cool for some undefinable reason. What does faith in action look like in that moment, in that boat? What is faith in action? What, how do you work out your salvation in that particular situation? So first, let's think. And it's got to be quick because you're right in this situation here. So we got to think. Jesus loves people. Jesus treats people with dignity. Jesus pursues outcasts and people with diseases and stuff that nobody wants to be around. He hangs out with the least of these. So we're thinking, and then we use self-control and courage. You're going to be tempted to go along with the excluding of that, that person, but instead refrain from going along and be courageous to speak up for the one whom no one is speaking up for, no matter the consequences. And it might be scary. It might really ruin your junior year. But you can do this. You know why? Because God is in you. You can do it. Your hands will be shaking. You'll be sweating. Speak up. And do a faith-filled thing. If you're able, convince that group, hey, let's, let's invite her. She's a human being made in the image of God and deserving of being treated with love and dignity. You might not word it exactly that way, but that's what you're thinking. And that's what I'm thinking. So make sure that she is not only just invited, but that she's right in the center of everything. But if you all of a sudden are now excluded because you have taken a stand here and done what's right by the power of God working within you, throw a party for the least of these, the downcast, the outsiders. Be known for that kind of thing. I think working out our salvation is a little bit like landscaping. A few Weeks ago, our family went and did the whole Home Depot run, kind of, you know, it's springtime, and so it's about getting dirt back into the planter boxes, and it's about digging and planting and moving this and that. I planted a tree in our backyard, this cute little thing on our back patio, and uh, all kinds of herbs and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's uh, nothing like uh, the good riches, but it's uh, good enough for, for us. So we bought all this stuff. We spent the day digging and sweating, uh, spending <laughs> many trips, three or four trips to Home Depot. We need another bag of this. We need another this or that. Now, at the end of the day, did my children bow before me and say, thank you, Father, for this backyard? No. No. We worked hard all day and we had blisters and dirt all over the place to prove it. And we thanked God, the Lord and provider and father of our home. I wasn't sitting there thinking, I deserve some glory here because I actually did the work. No, I'm thinking, how cool is that, that, we could, that God would bless us with a backyard like that? I love our backyard. Got our little Weber and a place for the kids to, all family sits down and, and eats. I love that. And God has provided that, even though I've done a lot of the work for that. I sweated. I moved that. I blew out my knee by putting down all those pavers. I did that. And yet God. And I think that's what it means to work out our salvation. So let me close with this in Romans 12. 
as we think through the implications of landscaping and all the areas of our lives that need the activity of us and God to bring light and truth. Let me close with this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing of your faith you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, we thank you for this very confusing passage of the Bible. Thank you for forcing us to think hard about what it might mean if we apply it to real life. And God, I pray that for each one of us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to live out and work out and do what comes from you saving us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with us? Oh